The following podcast contains adult situations and language. This content is intended only for listeners 18 and over. So, it's a routine Sunday evening. I am currently a struggling actor and, like so many, to pay the bills, I work as a waiter. Currently, I'm working at the Magic Pan Restaurant in North Park Mall, and my apartment on the weekends is, let's be honest, debauchery central. It's a ragtag bunch. The young, cool kids, the older, cool kids, men and women, straight and gay, black, brown, and white, from 16 to 60. Dawn is frequently the final kiss-off to Saturday night. Occasionally, someone spends the night. Frequently, someone spends... Usually, someone spends the night. And then at noon, when whatever season's sporting event is on, my prodigals return, the joints are lit, and the beer and wine flow like milk and honey all day long. The NBA playoffs have been on, and the place looks like the last scene from Scarface. Beer cans and wine bottles cover every available surface. Ashtrays are overloaded. But my precious demolished guests are gone, thank God. I find a small stub of a joint in an ashtray on the coffee table and turn on the 10 o'clock news. From KDF. Oh, but wait. I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me start at the beginning. I do, after all, need to create some suspense. The story you are about to hear is true. Once there was a boy and something terrible happened to him. The Incident, Chapter One. Where to begin? Where to begin? I see my breath, a floating fog that hangs in the air. That's how it begins. That's how it always begins, ever since the night it happened. I see my breath, dissipating liquid silver glitter. This is how it begins. This is how it's always begun. November 30th, 1979. The night air is clear as Baccarat and bitter to the bone. The skeletal branches of post-Thanksgiving trees, long past their leaves, scrape the sky as if scratching an omen. And the cruise in has failed to deliver a trick. Not acceptable. And it's last call. So I down my final tanqueray and tonic, bid adios to my friends, and walk out the door. On my way to the car, I poke my head into the bar next door, the ramrod. If my friend Tim is working, that means an after-hours drink for the road. But he's not, so I move on deeper in the hours of the moon. So many nights, this 3200 block of Fitzhugh Avenue has been the watering hole, standing at the foot of paradise. But it will give way to the march of time, and the cruise in will become a dry cleaners, and the ramrod, a quick lube. Seriously, you think I could make that up? Okay, so, 
it's the 70s. The late 70s, true, but still the 70s. By 1979, the sexual underground has finally crept in from the coasts and curled up in Dallas. And since over the decade I have been visiting New York and tasting the fruit of the demimonde, so to speak, I am ready for Dallas to step up and be a big girl. And she finally has. Oh, by the way, the manic pursuit of men knows no last call. That's a term for bartenders. But for many patrons, it's really just first call for the next leg of the journey. Choices. There's the cruise route, an array of prowling cars and pedestrians looking for a night's diversion. But it's cold tonight, which might discourage pedestrian traffic and thereby reduce the possibilities. Choices. Of course, there's the baths, a favorite destination. But I've already been there twice this week and will probably be there Saturday night because I almost always go to the baths on Saturday night and possibly Sunday night for cookout by the pool and maybe Wednesday night for half-price rooms, but for sure on Saturday night because I almost always go to the baths on Saturday night, so I save that option. Choices. There's Flagpole Hill, Norbuck Baseball Diamonds, and the woods at White Rock Lake, all within three blocks of each other. One-stop shopping. But there's been an increase in gay bashing there lately, and danger is not really on my itinerary. Last choice, but certainly not least, the adult bookstores, the peep shows. There are a few scattered around isolated outer edges of the city, but the greatest concentration per capita is on a seamy six-lane boulevard called Harry Hines. Harry Hines. What a world, boulevard of forbidden dreams. It's lined with gaudy purse and jewelry shops, dirty bars full of unconcealed weapons, massage parlors full of the full release, pool halls full of bikers, and scores of whores, the kind that take money and the kind like me that just fuck a lot, and about five adult bookstores. Two of them are so nasty that if the windows are rolled down, you can get herpes just driving past them. I mean, herpes is just flying out the front door, just flying right after you. The other three are what I would call respectable. Relatively clean, sort of, considering they are businesses of a certain ilk. There's the Red Letter News number one and the Red Letter News number two. Same design, same floor plan, Front half of the store full of racks of magazines with covers and titles of easy-to-choose-from simplicity. Humongous tits. Humongous cocks. Oklahoma. A tale of two titties. Saturday Night Beaver. And Titty Titty Gangbang. That's my favorite. And it's a real title. Very user-friendly. The back half of the store is Oz, the hallowed arcade. Upon turning a corner, the store's fluorescent assault disappears into luxurious darkness. A small glass-enclosed marquee shows the featured attractions and which booth is featuring which attraction. The clientele is varied, 
There are greasy mechanics rushing in with their heads down into the nearest booth highlighting pussy, businessmen taking the long way home to find a lesbian scene, and college guys who didn't find a woman for the night and don't have enough for a hooker but do have enough money and enough time to find solace in a peep show and a quick jack-off. But more often, the mechanic and the businessman are there for what most everyone else is. Dick. And the college guy is leaning that way. I hope this is nostalgic for at least some of you. Red Letter News number one is different from Red Letter News number two in a particular way. Nobody goes there. Identical, but nobody goes there. And I've never figured out why. The most modern of the three is the Paris. And as its name implies, it's the glamorous one. Enormous, standalone building, big, well-lit parking area, and inside, shiny new two-seater peep shows mixed with some older booths, many of which have glory holes sanded to a fairly well. I suppose to provide the fine upstanding dick a splinter-free, satiny smooth ride. What thoughtfulness. But the Paris, although quite busy, has little ethnic diversity and feels too much like an all-white country club from the 50s. I have had some hot action there, but my den of iniquity of choice is Red Letter News number two, with the Paris as a backup if things don't work out at Red Letter. So, Red Letter it is. And with the opening of the door comes the closing of speculation. Darn, no black men. Well, the night is young. The moving lineup is already in place inside the arcade. Multiple libidos on display for selection and seduction. The possibilities begin to take shape as my eyes adjust to the dim luster. It's a nocturnal parade at the arcade. A night nestled between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Uniforms, clowns, and superstars moving in a slow, predatory loop of lust. But like musical chairs, every so often someone leaves the game, presumably having hit the jackpot or wearied of the proceedings. I often like waiting until the crowd diminishes some. The competition is less stiff, so to speak. <laughs> the dick's a little more stiff, so to speak. And you never know who might walk in late. Always have a plan B. It's always fairly busy, and on the weekends it's packed. It's also more ethnically diverse, which is very important to me. Specifically, black men. But the black men here are almost entirely unfamiliar, as if from another milieu. A secret society full of mystery and chocolate love. So few of them are in the mainstream gay bars, I imagine they have their own scattered gathering places in hidden, discreet safety, free from anything but ease and the silky sinew of their bodies. Whatever the reason, I ignite to see them during the hours of the moon. There are things, acts, that I won't do unless you're black. And experience has taught me that many black men like smaller, slim, blonde men, which is fine by me, as I am smaller, slim, and blonde at this time. Experience has also taught me that black men just really know how to fuck. 
I mean, and yes, this is a generalization, but one born out of copious, I repeat, copious experience. Black men fuck like porn stars. Hard, rhythmic, varied, brutal. Doesn't matter if it hurts, which of course it usually does, which of course is sort of the point, which is fine by me. And all of these characteristics are more than welcome to a ride on the streetcar of my desire. I notice a young man eyeing me, longish, sandy blonde hair, in jeans and a yellow t-shirt with iron-on letters that say, the shit will hit the fan. Except the H in shit has come off and now lies unattached somewhere in the aisle of a 7-Eleven or on the asphalt of a bookstore parking lot or stuck to the floor of a peep show booth with more than one man's semen. Who knows? He's looking and letting me know that he knows that I know that he's staring at me, irresistibly smug in his knowledge of the truth behind my cautious mask. He is the one in the group of about 12 men left that I want, and I want him for that night as if I want him for life. Anonymous sex may be anonymous, but it's never casual, not for me. I always, always mean it. I want them to remember me 50 years later in the assisted living facility as they drift in and out of random memories relating their histories to the night nurses. There was this kid, and I picked him up at North Park Mall. But neither of us lived nearby, so I drove us a couple of blocks to the parking lot at Temple Emmanuel. I fucked him in my back seat in a corner of the parking lot at Temple Emmanuel. I guess it sounds sort of sacrilegious, but god damn, what a piece of ass. After circling the circle a couple more times, my dick firmly in the driver's seat, I peel away and deliberately, languidly, disappear into a deep, dark corner, awaiting, please God, his appearance. Sure enough, he rounds the corner, and his silhouette moves in on me until he's so close that he disappears. He keeps walking until he backs me up to the rear wall of the booth then reaches behind his back and slowly shuts the door. There's a flick still running from the previous occupant. Pornographic images play across the landscape of our bodies. Jesus, this is hotter than hot. And I feel his hot, whiskey-sugared breath on my neck as he starts to speak, but laughs slowly a quiet, self-satisfied chuckle, knowing I will submit and enjoying the fact. He whispers, warm in my ear. So, what do you like to do? For emphasis, he puts his hands behind my ass and pulls me to him, monkey grinding his crotch against my crotch. That first touch, hard cock to hard cock, shivers through my body and my quivering whisper answers I like to suck cock get fucked get sucked mostly get fucked you wanna fuck me 
and I suck his ear, tonguing it like a tourist attraction, then hold to see what is his pleasure. Hey, you like to do coke? Sinful as sex. I have two thoughts when I hear this. First thought, we are going to have sex, because if he wants to consider other tricks, he doesn't offer cocaine. Second thought, yes, I do like to do coke. Through his jeans, I begin to grope his dick, swelling with a full-on blood rush. After a few return gropes, come on, baby, let's go to the car. So with all haste, we slide out the door into the frigid night, hopping into the car and over the front seat's worn, chilly upholstery. I turn to him. When suddenly, two guys, both husky brunettes, slip into the back seat on a blast of outside air. Hey, Junior, the biggest of the two says to my blonde friend. Hey, Senior. Intoxication intensifies as I fast forward to the inevitably approaching four-way that just climbed into the car. Perfunctory introductions ensue. These guys are my friends. I wanted them to join us. You like groups, I can tell. And I do, and that's that. Junior points out that we're parked right under the store's security light. Maybe we shouldn't be so out in the open. Why don't we find a less obvious spot? And with that, he backs out to find a more hidden trysting place. And he's right. We are in full light. You never know where the cops are, and cops can be tricky and dangerous. So I completely agree with him. And we slowly crawl into an area draped in darkness at the far side of the crummy strip mall. No one's out here. It's perfect. I am so ready. And then there's a knife at my throat. My first thought is, well, that can't be a knife at my throat. That doesn't happen. But it is, and it does, and I am in big trouble. My algorithm for the night, a series of steps with the ultimate end of getting fucked, has put me in real danger. But how much? I look at the driver, Junior, and catch the quiet guy in the back seat behind him, both smiling almost benignly, as each raises his own knife. Three guys, three knives, one me. I don't like the odds. Three guys, three knives, and sliding into shadows. From this point on, inside the anesthetic calm of shock, I'm evaluating every detail before me, anticipating their possible next move, calculating the level of their hostility, and scanning my surroundings for any possible source, no matter how improbable, of help, rescue, or escape. The knives, by the way, are steak knives. Three steak knives. I am being held hostage not by guys wielding those shiny, oversized horror movie butcher knives throwing light like Liberace. No, these guys have steak knives. Not dramatic, but sufficient to the task. Small, serrated, hungry little rat teeth. 
that don't make a clean slash, but gnaw and pull and tear and hurt much more and take much longer. Oh God, now the car is pulling out of the parking lot onto Harry Hines, and I'm not sure, but I don't think we're going for coffee. But where are they taking me, and for what ultimate purpose? In the clear light of shock, for that's what it is, shock, I don't immediately jump to serious bodily injury or, God forbid, death as a possibility, which helps me remain focused. There has to be a reason to take me that does not require my extinction. But fuck, what is it? As we drive down Harry Hines, I glance as covertly as possible at their faces, study their demeanor, body language, listen like a hearing aid to their epically minimal conversation, their coughs, their exhalations, trying to absorb through the air any clue to their intentions. Hey, fag, know what we're going to do to you? No. Neither do we. <laughs> this is hilarious to them. And frankly, I'm relieved. I really don't want to hear what they're going to do to me. Denial to the end. Keep panic at bay. If I don't know the plan, there's hope that the worst-case scenario is not the plan. However, I do have to consider the worst-case scenario just in case because I need at least one plan B. And I have to do it right now because we're slowing down for a green traffic light and the amber right turn light starts blinking. We're turning off a main thoroughfare of carnival neon onto a lonely side street of shadows and moonlight. Like trespassers, we invade the opalescent peace of a series of streets studded with one-story strip warehouses. Although the moon is vibrant, there are still ample corners and shadows and driveways to nowhere. Scary, scary areas where bad things can go down. I look for a light anywhere anywhere in these deserted rows of rusting businesses that could ultimately be my graveyard. People work late, goddammit! Lots of them. There has to be one fucking person out here and I have to find him and figure out how to contact him. I see a couple of floodlights and a giant insect zapper, but there's not a window leaking light, not the glow of a television, not the flickering fluorescence of an open garage, not a moving human shadow, not a figure in a doorway or a silhouette on a shade. Most disappointing though, there's not another headlight, not a vehicle, nothing that might move close enough to make a difference, nothing. The road continues on and so do we. We leave the warehouse area for a huge expanse of undeveloped field, thigh-high grass and thick, dry undergrowth. Is it remotely possible, or is it ridiculous that I could jump out of the car and burrow deep enough into the grasslands that I might disappear to safety somewhere? There's three of them, and the grass being tall makes it easy to spot movement. On the other hand, if I wait until we stop, I lose the element of surprise. 
God, is this remotely possible or is it just fucking ridiculous? As I gauge the distance, I become aware of a glow in the direction of the horizon. Strung together like a diamond necklace are the lights lining a highway, moving headlights on cars that hold people, veiled in a misty, diffuse iridescence, tantalizing like a mirage of faintly possible deliverance. Faintly possible, and that's the deal. Possible to reach, but only faintly, these lives blithely unaware of my predicament. This sliver of hope beckons. To reach it on foot will require every possible element of an escape and pursuit to break in my favor. Every possible element. Can I risk it? I'm up against some expert players here. I look back and see how well thought out it is from the get-go, latching onto me with a stare like lobster claws, offering cocaine, hell yes. But if I don't want cocaine, I'm sure there's a cornucopia of temptations. Pot, booze, acid, valium, quaaludes, placidals, crystal, poppers. Well, I have poppers, so that would be moot. I have pot, too. A brand new bag, and of course I smoked a joint on the way, but weed would still be a temptation because, as a friend in college used to say, you can always get more stoned. So, enticement beyond simple sex is an insurance policy. Sexual attraction in these changing corridors of changeable men may wax or wane depending on who is in the circuit at any given time. So, add some bait to seal the deal. Being lured to the car by just one person also smacks of serious thought. While group sex is certainly appealing to me, they couldn't know or risk that I might get spooked at climbing into a strange car with a group of three strangers. So let the blonde boy with the funky t-shirt that's missing one of the iron-on letters be the hook. Entice me into the car, and then, from a hidden vantage, the two accomplices spy the exact moment of maximum vulnerability and distraction to move on in and hop in the car before I catch the slightest glimpse of them. Even then, my dick completely misreads the situation. I think there's a four-way happening, but I find we have different ideas of what Friday night fun is. I just want dick. And they seek, shall we say, alternative fun, way beyond vanilla. Get the target in, misdirect its focus, and then sucker punch it. This is well thought out. Oh, but the cleverest stroke of all, though, is parking under a floodlight. And with cocaine and sex on the table, it makes perfectly logical sense to find a less obvious location. In fact, they make it inarguably inevitable that we will move to a more hidden spot. If they park in a somewhat dimmer light, it might not seem so imperative to move. It might seem acceptable to play discreetly. And to head to a car in semi-darkness might make a stranger reconsider, drugs, dicks, and orgies aside. So... They go with the better odds and force a retreat into darkness by the simple but effective ploy of parking in a well-lit area. Game, set, 
fucking match. Wow. They really plan it. Maybe give it a dry run. Or fuck. Shit. Have they goddamn done it before? I mean, with a real person? And how far did they go? Knives. Oh, God. Not knives. That's my worst fear. Oh, please, God, let them have a gun. And if they're going to do anything, please let them use that so it'll be fast. Fuck it, I'm jumping out. And the car stops. Get out, faggot. And the game feels now irrevocably afoot, running like a loop in my brain are reminders about my behavior. Give them nothing to enjoy or hate. Show no fear, no pleading, no bargaining. Don't stimulate anything. Don't make them mad. Don't turn them on. Don't engorge the blood. Absorb it. Don't reflect it. No affect. I pray to be uninteresting for the first time in my life. Some cosmic hand seems to dial up the lunar light and the slow-mo kicks in here. Everything trudges forward at half pace. Details are bigger and hang around longer. Heretofore insignificant characteristics now pop like soda. The guy's pores seem visible. Junior has a small, slightly colored mole above his upper lip. There is nothing that does not move in on me. Now that time is merely walking, I notice his mouth seems set in a sneer, the eyes flat. God damn it, we never did the cocaine, fuck! A moment's absurd digression. The eyes may be booze-dimmed or buzzed in some way, but still he's decidedly residing in an interior universe that is deeply agitated. His eyes are simply not able to express the depth of terrible need and dark design, so they short-circuit, reveal nothing, and they reveal nothing with such intensity it's clear that when he happens, he happens all over everybody. Where we stop, the brittle grassy ground is flat for about ten feet and then rises in a sharp incline to a height of eight or so feet. As the other car doors open, Junior hisses, I said get out of the fucking car, faggot. Now the fun starts. Silently, neutrally, I step out. I follow the three as they move with deliberation away from the road. About halfway to the knoll, there is a small clearing and we stop here. Take your clothes off, cocksucker. This from the most inscrutable of the group, the one with no discernible nickname even. As I begin the slow strip, I know we're nearing the marrow of their intent. And what's it going to be? Humiliation? Rape? Torture? Something else? My heavy brown winter jacket drops to the ground. 
Although I don't feel cold, my fingers are numb, fumbling things as I silently struggle to unbutton my shirt, while also trying to hide the difficulty so I don't work them up. My impatient seducer, Junior, steps forward and begins ripping my shirt off. He's not overly muscular, but it's rough and jarring, and I get it. With the physical aggression ratcheting up, my brain won't be able to keep on top of it. As he tears at the shirt, I begin to maneuver my torso and my arms to actually enable the shirt to come off more easily, with the least amount of trauma, bring down the temperature, moderate the bloodlust. My shirt off, I start clumsily unbuttoning my 501s. I'm trying to pull my legs one at a time out of my jeans, so I raise one leg up to extricate myself, momentarily holding the pose of a flamingo. But I lose balance and watch in even slower mo as I reach to steady myself by grabbing the shoulder of the largest of my three captors. I see my breath. I've done it before I even have the time to consider doing it. Oh, I'm in big trouble now. A fag has tainted the fag basher. He jerks his shoulder out of my grasp. Don't lean on me. And that's it. That's all. That's all? Is he tired? By now it's after 3 a.m. Maybe his buzz is cutting out. In the face of this reaction, I know I've caught a lucky break. Terry, God damn it, refocus. You have to be careful about everything, you fucking idiot. As I slide my jeans down over my hips and attempt to free my legs from the denim, my balance is lost again. And to my abject horror, I see my arm reach out to steady myself grabbing the same shoulder a second time. Jesus, 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 how could I have done this a second time? I brace myself, wincing at the coming onslaught as I have touched an avenging angel twice now. This can't be tolerated. But again, his response is, mercifully and mysteriously underwhelming, as again, he just roughly shoves my arm away and says through admittedly clenched teeth, get off me. And I do, really, really quickly, and somehow manage to get my jeans off without further difficulty. It's surreal as hell to be in nothing but bikini briefs on a night as frigid as this, a night I will find out later is 23 degrees. But for some reason, my 90% cotton, 10% lycra spandex feels like armor against this insanity. And I so don't want to remove them. I hesitate briefly, and then they're off. And I'm naked. I'm glad you're here. I couldn't do this without you. I mean, I really, really couldn't do this without you. Why else do you think I lured you here? I don't want to do this alone.
The Incident is produced by CCP Media. Sound design and engineering by John M. Flores. Audio recording by Cameron Cobb. Original music by John M. Flores and Jim Kinzer. The podcast is based on true events, as chronicled in the one-man show The Incident by Terry Vandevoort. All rights reserved. Special thanks to Jeffrey Schmidt, The Drama Club, and Kitchen Dog Theater. From where? Just what you say. Oh, okay. Seduce me with it. Paint the picture. So, what do you like to do?